Hello, who are listening to the Greekonomics podcast. Let's begin the episode of the best podcast in the world. Hey, everybody. This is Alkis, and you're listening to the Greekonomics podcast, the show that explores how social, technological, and economic conditions will affect the businesses of the future with a focus both on the Greek economy and worldwide. Welcome to another Greek economics podcast. Today with us we have Didier, who is a crypto expert. As he says, I would not like to talk a lot more. Didier, talk to us a bit about yourself, your background, what you do, and I'm super excited to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Alkis. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, crypto expert, maybe that's a little bit of a presumptuous term because I know a lot of people who know crypto, I think, a lot better than me. I'd say I'm just a self curious, self-educated person. I used to be a bond trader. I was in finance my whole life. I discovered crypto a bit coincidentally in 2015 or 16. And like everybody else, I I dismissed it at the beginning right, as being a scam. And the only reason I took it seriously is because somebody I respect a lot told me it wasn't a scam and I ought to take it seriously. I didn't want to answer to him that it was a scam simply because the price is going up fast. I had to give him a better answer than that. And to do that, I had to educate myself. And so I educated myself on Bitcoin and then little by little went down the rabbit hole. And When did you start actually with this? Was it in the early, kind of early phase in crypto or more more so towards the, the boom and the peak of, of crypto? 2016. And oh, I so early? Yeah, you know, you always think you're early or you always think you're late. I still think you're very early. In 2016, the price was already like, it wasn't $1,000. But, uh, you know, there's a, there's a YouTube video of this one guy. It's fantastic. It's one of my favorite YouTube videos on Bitcoin. Uh, that when the dollar, when the Bitcoin passed $100, and this YouTube, you can put, you can go on YouTube, Bitcoin passed $100, and you see this geek who's like so happy, who's so proud, who thinks that... Uh, I know, I've seen the video. It was a guy who was not even a YouTuber, like randomly... Uh, yeah, for him, it's the validation. He's saying, you yeah. see, it works. You see, this is not a... This is a validation. And he was so happy. And it was fantastic. At $100. At $100. <laughs> and I have a friend of mine who, who bought his first ones at like... 2000, whatever, 19 or whatever. The price at the time was like seven or 8,000. And he was saying, I'm late. And I said to him, you're late. Less than 1% of the world owns it. What do you mean you're late? You know, like in 1997, they say 10 million people had email address. And in 2007, it was in the billions. Or in 1997, like less than 1% of the world was on the internet, and now it's 60%. I claim the same thing with Bitcoin. I say less than 1% of the world owns it today. You're not late at all. Then when I told him that, he said, hi, that, that, that convinced him that he wasn't late. Now he's happy because he bought them. He bought his Bitcoin around seven or 8,000. So there you go. Yeah, that's, uh, I got That's I got great. Him, yeah. I still think um, you're early. If somebody doesn't own something, and now is in fact a good time. To, I don't like recommending people to buy or price everybody. But Tesla sold all of their most of their Bitcoin reserves they had bought. I don't know. Maybe it's not a signal. This might not. This might not cause any more anxiety and turbulence in the markets. But I truly believe that 
maybe this is not investment advice. By the way, I need to address that. But yeah, I think it, it is really indeed a, an opportunity to to buy if you are a long-term backer of this security. Because I believe that in order for all of this system to work, in order for it not to be a Ponzi scheme, as many call it, you need to have a long-term vision for it, right? Absolutely, I agree, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't like either talking about price. Everybody has to determine what risk they want to take and everybody has to educate themselves and so on, of course. I, so I think one should educate themselves. I did a lot of education before I bought my own, but I'm one of these nutters who thinks it's going way much, 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 much higher than it is today. You just have to wait, I don't know, 10 years or five or 10 years or something, but the price will be much, much, much higher than it is today, in my opinion. But, you know, everybody educate, has to educate, you know, educate himself or herself, make his or her own decision. Yeah, of course. Decide what risk they want to take themselves. With regards to crypto, I would like to ask because people confuse the types of blockchain that exist with regards to the proof of stake, way of validating and a proof of work. And could you describe to me a bit, what is the difference between the two? Yeah, there are two different ways to achieve consensus. Consensus means that we agree on, we agree on the state of the, of the blockchain. Let me, I'm afraid, I'm afraid I'm going to be technical, but let me back up a little bit. For me, a blockchain, nah, I was going to explain what a blockchain is and what the Byzantine general's problem is a little bit to explain. No, totally. I think that it is something that is a prerequisite to understand in order to address this question. So feel free to explain the whole story behind the blockchain. Exactly. What it is. Yeah. yeah, exactly. What is what is the blockchain? What was the problem with the Byzantine General's problem? And then the, the way that Bitcoin solved this was with proof of work. And then other people invented proof of stake. So in my definition of what a, a blockchain is, is it's just a database. It's just another way of managing a database. So by a database, they often call it a ledger. Like a database, you can imagine something like the land registry of, of Athens or Geneva or New York or wherever. So it's just a land registry is just like a database and there are new transactions coming in and out. In other words, people are buying and selling their home or they're buying and selling a piece of land and the database tracks who owns it. So the Bitcoin blockchain is the Bitcoin with a capital B, Bitcoin meaning the blockchain when it's spelled with a capital B is just the database and it's tracking who owns which Bitcoin. Bitcoin spelled with lowercase b means the asset that's worth about $23,000 right now. So the Bitcoin blockchain tracks who owns which Bitcoin. So for me, it's just a database and the Bitcoin just like the land registry tracks who owns which which piece of land or which apartment or something. It's just that it's organized in a completely different way. And it's organized in a decentralized way. So uh, it is, firstly, it's not, it was not initially made to be a financial instrument, if I may say, a, a way of making transactions. It was more generally based on data management and stuff like that. Well, if you look at the white paper, like the first sentence or the second sentence is something like, I've invented a peer-to-peer payment mechanism. So he was trying to make a way of exchanging value, or exchange, value meaning money, meaning in this case Bitcoin, exchanging something that you say represents value, peer-to-peer without going through a middleman. So I've heard also other people say it's just a means of transmitting value. It's just a communication means. I call it a, a database, but the, you could it's a database where you transmit something that we say has value. So yes, I would say it was made as a means of 
transmitting value or data. That's simply because in the white paper, like the second or first or third sentence or something, is I've invented a peer-to-peer payment mechanism, or I forgot the exact words, but it's just about that. So, so it was made for that, and. I would argue it's that, and it's also a store of value, meaning, so, so if you like the Bitcoin, and for me, the fundamental sort of value proposition of Bitcoin is that it was, it's a database that I would claim now is like the most secure database in the world, the most least corruptible database in the world, the least manipulable database in the world, and it's tracking the ownership, the Bitcoin blockchain is tracking the ownership of Bitcoin, which is a an asset that is by construction limited. If it's like if I told you I have a database and we're tracking who owns which painting by Da Vinci, and Da Vinci, there's a limited amount. He's made 19, he's only going to make 21. But if I, of course, Da Vinci's dead. But I mean, the point is, you will never be able to fake one. You will never be able to produce fake ones. And this database cannot be manipulated by some central entity. And we've decided, so... It's a database tracking something that's limited, and the database is very secure. The fundamental value proposition is that it's very secure, and then it's decentralized. And because it's because it's decentralized, you obtain censorship resistance only because it's decentralized. So, what was the problem that they had to solve? To basically, the idea with the central the database is that you didn't want to have a central a central point of failure. You didn't want to have it centralized. And to solve that problem, and to obtain a database that is really decentralized. We're going to use another one of your Greek terms. You had to solve what was called the Byzantine fault, Byzantine generals problem. So I was going to kid you because you're Greek and you Greeks. I was also a kid in school and I had to study these ancient Greek mythology. And at first you read these things and you say, wow, this is difficult. This is complicated. And then when you understand it, you say, ah, oh, these Greek guys, they were pretty smart. They figured out a lot of stuff a long time ago. So the Byzantine generals problem is a bit that they were, were using ancient Greek terms. And at first... If you don't know what it is, you have no idea, you know, what does this mean, the Byzantine general's problem? And, but then when you understand it, it's a, it's the fundamental problem of why in the past we were never able to make a, a database that is decentralized. So the Byzantine general's problem is simply the idea that you, if you have, if you want to have a database that's decentralized, like say Bitcoin, you want it to be decentralized because you don't want a single point of failure. And you want it to be, if there's no single point of failure, it becomes much more censorship resistant. So how do you, in general, the Byzantine general's problem just simply meant that if you're going to have many copies of the same database, uh, how do you make sure that they all agree? And how do you make sure that they all have the same data? So it's a little bit like if I say to you, let's say that the Greek land registry, there isn't one official copy of the registry held by, you know, some office in, in of the government of Athens, but everybody in Athens has a copy of the database because that's what happens with Bitcoin. Everybody running a node has the full copy of the database. So how do you, if you have many, many different copies of the same information and it's getting updated all the time by new transactions, people are buying and selling all the time, plus you have to assume that they're going to be dishonest people in there, how do you make sure that everybody has the same copy of the database? And there are no malicious attempts to, to change the whole blockchain right. in favor of some. Yeah. Correct. You have to presume there will be. So how can we protect against this, right? So the, the Byzantine general's problem means how do you make sure that everybody has the same copy and it's correct? 
That's what the gen- Byzantine general's problem is. But of course, it's a term invented by by computer scientists, so they're not great at marketing. But th- th- that's the fundamental idea of how do you how do you have many different copies of the same database? They're all you have to have them all be the same and all be correct or canonical. Canonical meaning like the reference copy. And in the past, we were never able to solve that problem. To solve that problem. You had to trust some central party like, you know, the office of the land registry or something, which means you could easily censor them or, you know, influence them or something. And that's what the Byzantine general's problem is. And that was the, the first time it was solved in computer science was with Bitcoin. And that's another element of the puzzle. And then how do you achieve this consensus? Consensus meaning consensus among all the people running a node, all the people carrying a copy of the database. Bitcoin solves this with with proof of work. You can say proof of work solves the Byzantine general's problem. A quick explanation of what proof of work is is that basically everybody's getting all these everybody's getting all these new transactions happening all the time, meaning everybody running a full Bitcoin node, which is re- relatively easy, huh? And uh, they connect it to the internet and they connect and they get all these transactions coming in and out. I'm buying and selling mine, I'm selling mine to yours. And then a miner takes, so everybody has a full copy of this and everybody's checking every transaction, but you could, to make it definitive and not move it around, what a miner does is he takes all these different, this is now proof of work. The miner takes all these different transactions. He, he puts them together in an abbreviation called a Merkle root, but he basically takes all these transactions and he condenses them. And then he has to add a mathematical solve a mathematical problem and that's what proof of work is in fact it's not really solving a mathematical problem it's basically finding a random number but a random number that when mixed with all the transactions will give you a specific result and sorry uh, but doesn't here here isn't here where the main problem with bitcoin comes with regards to the concentration of the computing power in order to solve this mathematical puzzle Good question. Well, I would argue it's in fact not all that concentrated because I think I just saw the other day that the, the miner with the most hashing power has 1%. So, there, yeah, people confuse two things, mining pools and individual miners and mining rigs. Mining rigs are individual miners. The rig is like the hardware that you buy. And a miner could be a company that buys hardware. And That's what a miner is. And then he might join a mining pool. In other words, he might form a sort of a syndicate with other miners. And together, they will have more mining power. But the miner in the mining pool, you can come in and out quickly and change quickly. People sometimes confuse mining pools and mining miners or mining rigs. The the most, uh, I think that I saw the other day that the, the single miner with the most hashing power is only 1%. At one point, the mining pool was gaining a lot of total, I think it was in 2018, was gaining a lot the total hash power of the whole network was relatively high, and they decided spontaneously to break up. So, yeah, you could have a concentration of problem of mining power, but I, I really don't consider that a problem for, for several reasons. Because on top of that, even if you have a lot of mining power, All you're doing is validating transactions. You can't change the rules. And again, I'm afraid I'll be... But, but, but I'll if suddenly, sorry, but what if suddenly in China, for example, they say Bitcoin 
is banned. You cannot mine any more Bitcoin. Wouldn't if if they if most of the market power was concentrated, let's say a thirty percent in China, wouldn't this cause a huge crash in the whole system? You could think that theoretically, it's a reasonable question, and we already saw that, and it didn't happen. That's because it's already very the mining community of Bitcoin is already very big and very robust. So as what you're saying happened, it was about a year ago, I think. I think it was in May 2021. And Bitcoin and China said, you guys are no longer allowed to use energy to mine Bitcoin because we need this energy to do other things. So most of the miners, uh, there was about a 30% of the total mining power of Bitcoin dropped after that. And about three or four months later, that 30% of mining power came back online in other countries, mostly in the US, but also in Kazakhstan, I think a bit in Russia. In fact, if you look at miners, where they're spread out over the world, they're in fact relatively well spread out. There's a lot in the US, but there's a lot in Kazakhstan, there's some in Russia, there's in fact quite a bit also in the Middle East, there's some in, there's some in Australia, it's wherever they have cheap energy. So yes, it would be a reasonable thing to say that, what if a lot of mining power came offline, but I would say that mining is already so big and so robust that even a 30% drop didn't really hurt the, the network. And yeah, so there you go. Yeah. And another question I would like to ask, since we have kind of explained what the whole process is like, what is what is crypto essentially, in, in not just a very basic framework, I would like to ask, why is crypto useful for both the rich and the poor alike? Because of course, to have a system adopted by so by so many people that that people imagine when they are investing in Bitcoin. Bitcoin is supposedly decentralized. It is a tool for everyone because this is essentially what the word decentralized means. This is the meaning that it brings forth. So why is it useful for both rich and poor alike? Yeah, good question. And the answer is probably the utility for rich and poor alike is slightly different. So the utility for the poor is that it's the poor, it's for people who get closed out of a bank. When you get closed out of a bank, or you're not allowed to open an account because you're not rich enough, because you don't have, because you can't justify your ID, you don't have a valid ID card, things like that. With Bitcoin, you, you never, you can download the software, it's free. You can buy some either, okay, from an exchange or get it from somebody else. And nobody checks your ID, nobody checks your how much money you already have. You don't have to, you don't have to justify that you're an interesting client. You don't have to justify who you are. You just have to download free software. So it, it gives people who a means of payment, an electronic means of payment that they didn't have uh, if they were too poor. That's number one. Also, people who live like, like we said, if, you know, I'm going to refer to another Greek because you're a Greek, which is Andreas Antonopoulos. Andreas Antonopoulos is a great educator on Bitcoin, and he coined the famous term, not your keys, not your coins, meaning the only person who owns the Bitcoin is the person who has the private keys. That's run, that, that's managed by your wallet, and you can get a lot of good wallets for free. And so the, the Bitcoin, the person who owns the Bitcoin is the person who owns the keys and not the bank. So if, if you have your money in a bank and you live in a country with dysfunctional banks, sometimes the bank closes you out of your money. They say you can't pull money out of your account. They say, uh, yeah, they, you can't pull money out of your account for one reason or another. 
basically, the, it's almost as if the bank stole your money. With Bitcoin, nobody, your money is not in a bank. You're, it's, in a, it's in a private wallet, theoretically, that you should own. And in your wallet is managing your private keys, and the private key, the person who owns the private keys owns owns the owns the coins. It's the only person who can move the coins. So that that's for me. That's the main use case. Why it's useful for for poor people is it gives them a, an electronic means of payment that can't be taken away from them. And for people who live in dysfunctional countries or who are not rich enough to be interesting for banks, that's the advantage. For 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 rich people who don't suffer from being afraid of being closed out of their bank or don't suffer from, you know, who have a bank account. The advantage for them is what I call store of value. It's the gold 2.0 thesis of Bitcoin. Meaning, like I said before, Bitcoin for me is like the most secure database in the world, the least manipulable database in the world. And it's tracking the ownership of something that is by definition limited. So you're going to own something. It's a store of value. You're going to own something for which there's going to be a limited supply. And if you make the fundamental bet that the demand for this will just increase, which is what I think, then it's like it's it's a little bit like saying I own a painting of of Da Vinci, and I think the value of paintings of Da Vinci or yeah. Picasso are just going to go up. And, but let me ask. Like I, you know, this is going to be my role today. I'm going to try and find interesting things that we can discuss and debate. But what if the value doesn't rise? What what if it's still that volatile? Wouldn't this be a problem in the adoption of Bitcoin? Like I was reading a while back about Odell Beckham Jr. He's an American NFL player who who essentially requested that, that most of his salary would be would be made the payments would be made in Bitcoin. So he received his salary in Bitcoin. And it was something like 750,000 at the start. And then after taxes and after the price of Bitcoin fell, it was 35,000. So how, I don't know, isn't this one of the main issues again that exists about the adopt, the worldwide adoption of Bitcoin in the place of normal fiat currency? That's a good, that's a good point and a valid point. I suppose, so it's volatile. That's true. And I suppose, again, it's a definition of what you consider a store of value and what your time frame is. So store of value. So I could say to you, what do you consider your store of value? Do you consider it your your local currency? So I don't know, your euro or Swiss franc or dollar. Okay, so the store of value. Do you think that in 10 years you will be able to buy as much with $100 or 100 euros, whatever? Do you think you'll be able to buy as much with 100 euros in 10 years as you can today? No, you certainly you can not. Buy? Certainly huh? not. Certainly no, not. Certainly not. And you do think you can buy the same with 100 euros today that you could have, you know, 20 years ago, you bought a lot more with 100 euros. So if we consider that store of value, so it's not good. So that's why people buy shares. They buy real estate. They think, ah, because the, I'm going to buy the real estate today for whatever, 100,000. And then 20 years, it'll be worth 120,000. And I'll be able to buy the same thing with 120,000. I can buy with 100,000 today, hopefully even more. So uh, that's the idea. So that's the idea of Bitcoin because it, there's a limited amount. So, but it's true. In the meantime, it's volatile. I agree with that. I, I, I say the, the uh, volatility just measures volatility. It doesn't measure risk. I don't measure risk by the, uh, by volatility. I measure risk by does it have. Oh, any that's a nice one. That's a, that's one of the main things that they teach. Uh, they, they teach in. 
investment courses, regardless of the subject, regardless of crypto and stuff like that. I think this is a very important point that you said. Yeah, it's true that if you if you need it like on a daily basis to buy bread and the price goes down, it's a problem. It depends what your time frame is. But like I say, for me, volatility just measures volatility. For me, the risk is, does it have any intrinsic value? And can it easily be reproduced or replaced by something equivalent? And in those, under those two criteria, Bitcoin has tremendous uh, value and zero risk. For me, for me, there's almost no risk that people don't discover it has intrinsic value, and there's almost no risk that it can be easily replaced. So uh, uh, for me, there's no risk, but the price is volatile. That's true. And yeah, I mean, the other sort of fundamental weakness, you could say, of Bitcoin, but it applies to every asset, is people just have to accept it and consider it as a means of payment or a store of value. But you can say the same thing about, you know, the dollar or the euro or, or painting or a share of, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you can say that about anything. People have to, or gold, people have to just fundamentally that, that they want it as a store of value. But if they don't, then it has no value. That's true. I'm, I'm making the other bet. That's all. Yeah. But even now, like most of the currency is digitalized. Most of it just pressing some numbers on a machine and then somehow money is made. And you can see that with, like recently I saw that the USD came into parity with the euro, which really shows that almost all currencies fluctuate. But yeah, I truly agree that if you take it this way, if you see value in something, it could, if you see the value in Bitcoin, it could really be, it could really exist. So it's basically about the perception of the people on, on whether Bitcoin could indeed click, tick off this criteria, these criteria in order to be adopted uh, worldwide and, u- and be used in, tran- in transactions more often. Anyway, I would like to ask another thing now on the, on the same topic. Energy consumption of Bitcoin is a major issue that is ad- constantly addressed by people. What are the, co- the most common misconceptions that you've heard about this topic? Well, first, in fact, the energy, well, many, the, <laughs> the, the, the counter arguments by Bitcoiners are many. Well, first is that gold consumes about four and a half times more energy digging and mining gold than Bitcoin does. Second of all, like the energy of the whole Bitcoin grid, the hydro Quebec in, in, in Quebec, the hydroelectric plant produces with hydropower two times more energy than all of Bitcoin energy consumption. Like the banking system worldwide consumes like five times more energy than Bitcoin. Nobody complains about those. Then the question is, what's the utility of the energy? People probably complain because they don't see the utility of it. The utility of it is is the proof, is performing proof of work. And that's what makes the blockchain immutable. In other words, you can't change it after transactions have been passed and put into blocks. And that gives you tremendous security. For example, what one thing that struck me initially with Bitcoin was that, for example, if you have dollars, if you're if you're an opposition leader, if you're Navalny, I don't know, in Russia, and you're opposing Putin, and your political party has a million dollars in the bank, Putin calls the director of the bank and he says, close the account with Navalny and put the money in my account. And you can't do that with Bitcoin. It's censorship resistant. Why can't you do that? First, because to move the coins, you need the keys of the private keys of the coins. The bank shouldn't have them. So if you have your, if you're a self custodian of your own Bitcoin, you have the private keys and nobody can break the cryptography. And the other reason is nobody can redo a past transaction. 
Because once the transaction is about five or six blocks old, about the, an hour old, you would have to respend all the energy of all the transactions of the whole Bitcoin blockchain just to, if you got the keys, just to reverse one transaction. So uh, the, 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 the spending of the energy is a way of making it impossible to, re, to cancel out an old transaction. Whereas if you just call the director of the bank and tell him to move the money, it costs them zero energy. It's very easy to do. So that's the utility that most people don't see. The, the main misconception is that people think most of the energy is dirty energy because, in fact, the universe produces more energy than we'll ever need, right? The, the sun produces more solar energy than we'll ever need. And uh, for a Bitcoin miner, the biggest input into the, his cost of mining is the cost of energy. And the cheapest energy is energy that nobody wants, that's thrown away. And the, and the most cheap energy that's thrown away all the time is generally speaking green energy. So for example, Bitcoin miners in China, they were kicked out of China. About six months of the year, most of their mining came from hydro, hydro energy from hydro dams, from water dams that produce more energy that could be, that, that the energy grid needed. And then when it was the dry season, the miners moved to coal mining. But the point was that the, the cheapest energy is green energy because it, because we, you know, the, the world produces a lot of it. And the advantage of Bitcoin mining is that you can, it gives you a way to monitor, you can overbuild your green energy capacity and solar or, or wind or whatever. And it gives you a way to monetize it when you, you overbuild more solar capacity than you need. And then you can mine some Bitcoin and it gives you a way to monetize. The fact that you overbuild the grid, and because you overbuild it, you will have more clean energy when you need it. So, because Bitcoin mining has two has two really big advantages. One is that you can put the mining rig right next to the source of energy. So you can build a mining rig in the middle of the desert where you have plenty of sun, but nobody lives. And then you, and then that gives you a way to monetize energy that's produced. And that then with that monetization, you can send that energy to where people live. So it has two big advantages. One is that it allows you to, you can put the mining rig next to the source of energy and it's very easy to turn on and off. So when you want to turn off the mining rig and you want to use the electricity for something else, you can do that as well. And it, so it incentivizes people to start transitioning more into green energy because it's a way to say, hey, you can make money by doing that. So let's go a bit and make it a bit more... Uh, a bit greener, let's say, it provides an incentive for them, right? Exactly. And in fact, that's why if you look at so this is I find this very telling. Over the years since Bitcoin has developed, every year the total hashing rate, in other words, the total amount of miners trying to mine Bitcoin, it just goes up regularly. Okay, there are periods when it comes down, you know, for a couple of months, but then it goes up. But the trend over the years is clearly upwards. So it's, you know, it, it shows that it's people make money out of it. For example, I'll give you a great example, which is another misconception about mining. Exxon and uh, Chevron, ConocoPhillips have both said that they've mined Bitcoin. So how did they mine Bitcoin? What did they do? When you drill for oil, you often get gas flares, methane gas. And methane gas is very polluting. And this gas just goes into the atmosphere when you're drilling for oil. And the methane gas that they... that gets extracted that goes into the atmosphere is often 
too small a quantity for the oil major like Exxon to actually, you know, uh, capture it and, and put a pipeline there. So these guys now say that they're mining Bitcoin because they capture this gas, they use it to create electricity, and they put a mining rig right next to where they're mining, where they're drilling for oil and where they're capturing the gas. So they, so they say they have Bitcoin on their balance sheet, the company owns them, and they got it through mining because they put a mining rig to capture methane gas that would have before was just being lost, was just going into the atmosphere. So this idea that it's that it's negative for the environment, that's a, that's the biggest misconception, I would say. Okay, and just to start concluding today's episode, what what are a few like the two main developments that now in Bitcoin that are happening now that you believe could change this sector forever? The Lightning Network and the Lightning Network and all the innovation that's coming around Lightning Network. So Lightning Network is a, is a, well, they call it a second layer solution on Bitcoin. You use Bitcoin, you put it in another thing called Lightning, which is a little bit like a WhatsApp. And you can also get a Lightning wallet easily and quickly. And then you really just send sats, satoshis or bits of Bitcoin to anybody else who has a Lightning wallet. And it's instantaneous and free. It's like sending a WhatsApp message. And it allows all sorts of new business models because it's almost free and it's about instantaneous. People are making, starting to make money more and more in ways that they never did because of lightning. So for example, like podcasting 2.0 where, where, where you can stream sats, you know, the, you can stream a you know, a couple hundred sats or, you know, a couple cents to your favorite podcaster or the podcaster can take some of the advertising revenue that he might get and distribute it to people who are listening to him and streaming sats to him. So you can get you can get revenue by listening to podcasts. It's revenue coming from from advertising, for example. And all this is enabled probably because you have an instantaneous payment method. It's not quite free, but it's still like less than one cent to send money. So that's yeah. That's I mean, yeah, that is very very interesting. That seems like a thing that could uh, another touch to entice more people to, to, to join this whole movement. Because I do believe that it's more a, a movement because you need to invite as many people as, po- as possible to believe in crypto and in, in Bitcoin and whatever cryptocurrency succeed and succeeds and be- may become world uh, adopted worldwide. But you need to convince people that Bitcoin is not a commodity. It's not... It's not a short-term penny stock, but more so a long-term investment, a long-term... There's a long-term plan and vision. And I think this is what you need to change in the whole system of crypto in order to remove most of the problems. Because volatility volatility could be removed if we just said that, hey, we're going to, to sell more and buy less and like <laughs> s- sell sell less often. That means having a more long-term vision. Most of the problems, I believe, at least this is my opinion, could be removed by convincing people that, hey, this is long-term. This is not just buy and sell in one or two days. Yeah, well, of course, I totally agree. One is when I look, when people speak to me about Bitcoin, I, I figure out right away, is he speaking to me about the technology or is he speaking about the price and he wants to make a quick buck? 
And I see right away his difference of, you know, of outlook. I also think just for all listeners, your new listeners and old listeners, I mean, I think it's normal that it takes a time to really see the value and to really get it because either you're, you would, you will get it right away in two, two circumstances. Either you're a cryptographer or you're used to disabated systems like the internet. You did, you were an IT expert used to disabated distributed systems like the internet. If that is not your field of expertise, either one of those two fields, it's normal that you don't get it right away. <laughs> it's tough to get. It takes you a little while to see how, why it's really decentralized, why it can't be manipulated, and therefore why it's sort of independent of human whim. And that it's a, it's a very robust system that lets you transmit value. It's, it's normal that it takes you a while to get that. But then when you see that value, then, yeah, the volatility, you're willing to put up with the volatility, absolutely. But I think there will be new killer apps in the in the next couple of years over Lightning, and Lightning uses Bitcoin. So so I still think, you know, it'll be like whatever, like the Internet. You use it, and you don't really know how it works. We just need a little bit more time. Yeah, so that seems exciting <laughs> about <laughs> the future of Bitcoin. Maybe in uh, a couple of years... We will all be transacting using another some form of crypto, some form of a currency like the ones we're using right now in crypto. I don't know, but it certainly seems exciting. But thanks a lot for explaining these concepts. As you see YouTube videos of them, of people explaining them, so so complicated. You see adverse opinions. You see false information a lot about crypto since it is some. It is kind of a new field, so there are there are there is a lot of false information circulating. But thanks a lot for explaining it in terms that almost everyone can uh, can understand. And it was a pleasure talking to you. It was my pleasure. Okay. So, Thank you for having me. And I hope we can we can talk in another episode about another crypto event that may happen in the future or something else interesting. But yeah, once again, thank you. And uh, yeah, I hope we could do another episode soon. But uh, thanks once again. Yeah. Okay. All right, all right, Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in, Greek Economics listeners, and we will meet again in the next episode.